Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm about to go a few rounds today with my <laughs> author, Arnold Zabel, who has written a book entitled The Fighter. So, Arnold, welcome back to 3CR. It's great to be here. We're just... We were talking before about putting a, a couch in here, the Arnold Zabel couch, because he's been in before. Mm. You've interviewed him. Many Jen? times, yes, yes. Violin lessons last time and uh, a few times before that too, mm-hmm. I think, the fig tree. So it's lovely to see you back, Arnold. Yeah, great to be now, back again. This book, Arnold, sort of defies classification <laughs> in so many ways because, and I want to explore a lot of the threads. Um, in the first instance, it's a true story or it's subtitled a true story it's a sort of biography of henry nissen so it's come to this 67 years old and he labors on the docks cropped gray white beard xboxes pug nose he is stocky rotund and short his strength is sensed rather than seen belied by age and excess weight henry nissen exudes vigor his life force is strong it animates his gestures powers his determined walk how did you get onto henry nissen yeah, well, it, it, I um, I like the fact that you you said at the beginning that it defies classification, and and I I think as you can see from those opening lines, it's it's uh, written like a novel in many ways. But we can get back to that. Um, but uh, with Henry, look, I, I grew up uh, ten minutes walk from uh, where Henry grew up, and at the same time. Uh, I, I lived in Canning Street and I recorded my neighbourhood in a novel called Scraps of Heaven, which came out in 2004, also published by text. And um, and yet, uh, 10 minutes away was another neighbourhood. Uh, and in those days, just a few streets uh, composed your world. So we lived in parallel worlds. There were uncanny similarities between us um, and... Um, uh, and and I was aware of them, and I probably met them. You know, I can't really place exactly when I first met them, but they were becoming the legendary Nissan twins uh, as boxers. That's Leon and Henry, and so uh, we were all aware of them. Uh, and when I say uh, there are uncanny similarities, I think they first of all involve the fact that our did our parents were both. Well, our parents both lost family in the Holocaust. Um, We had parents who came from Poland and uh, Poland-Russian border area. Um, And um, also we both had uh, very disturbed mothers. In in the case of Henry, she was far more disturbed and traumatised by the loss of family and what happened to her personally than my mother was. But there were those... Similarities, but see, this encompasses a lot of what this book is about. You've got then the biography of Henry, but then you sort of go into that immediate social history of the world they grew up in, and this is sort of Carlton, uh, Rathdown Street, and and Amos Street, and such like. But then you've also got the broader history of what might have influenced their lives with the with the post Holocaust. So it builds as you go. But one of the interesting things, getting back to Henry, you like to pick up local stories. You've done it in many ways in, in other works, you know, Cafe Scheherazade, the people that come into the cafe. 
each person seems to have a story. It's it's similar here. You've taken an ordinary person, would you say, and grabbed his story? Yes. Look, the it's. I think you've uh, put it very well. I, uh, the way I put it is that um, uh, Cafe Scheherazade and the Fighter are, are both iconic Melbourne stories, um, and in a way they were they they were crying out to be told. Uh, and uh, that's what drew, drew me to both stories. I mean, many, many people, especially those that come from the 60s and 70s and grew up uh, in that era when boxing was an esteemed sport, uh, the Nissans are legends and, and they are iconic. Um, and uh, so and there, there is a, a definite parallel there. But the other thing, I guess, is that... Um, Yes, he's an ordinary person who's lived an extraordinary life. You know, I mean, he's an ordinary person. That you've got to remember that these two kids were being bullied relentlessly. They were the smallest and skinniest kids on the block. They, um, they both, uh, uh, you know, at one stage uh, ran with gangs as a form of protect, self-protection, really. Uh, and they wanted to find a way out and a way up. And they and they saw themselves as losers. I mean, that's the term Henry uses. He says, I, I was a loser at everything else. Mm. And then 90 seconds down the road, that's how long it takes to walk from their tiny, impoverished cottage in Amos Street to the double-story terrace. Uh, there was um, uh, Peter and Mick Reed, father and son, who were former. Well, uh, Peter was a former boxer who was taking on kids, and it changed their lives profoundly. Yeah. But I don't see you as a pugilist, Arnold. <laughs> you don't sort of have the boxing frame about you. Your nose is not bent as having been involved in fights. So, how did you get all this information about Henry's life? Well, actually, if you read Scraps of Heaven, you'll see that, uh, and the character Josh is is partly based on me and partly based, actually, on the Nissans. There, there was a, a hint of the Nissans when I wrote that. Um, I did a bit of boxing, you know, back lane gym, but not much. You know, it, it I, the sport that thrilled me was athletics. I found speed in my feet, and that was transformative too. But, um, look, if you're going to write a story... Uh, you've got to enter into the worlds that uh, that, that 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 the story leads you to, and a, a big part, by far not the only part, but a substantial part of this story is the boxing world. And so I entered into that world. I was it, it, who am I in this in this book? Uh, I'm I'm a minimal presence, and that's deliberate, right? And you know, there's two types of first person. There's the first person who's the subject, and as I've been saying it recent talks, Helen Garner is a, is a maestro at, um, at, at at having herself in the story. But in this, I wanted to be a minimal presence. So I'm there. I'm the silent witness at, at places like the Boxing Hall of Fame night, the, the, the boxing matches, the, um, the uh, reu- boxers' reunions and the various other worlds to do with boxing that uh, uh, Henry took me to. Now, you say you're a silent witness, but I'm going to challenge that a little <laughs> because as a writer, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you actually influence our perceptions of boxing and then what you do with this world of boxing. And I'm going to read two passages with your indulgence. The one is the McCluskey fight, and just the ending here. 
McCluskey endures the fourth, but in the fifth, Nissen hits him with a savage right to the jaw. McCluskey's arms are flung open. His chest is fully exposed. An instant later, he is hurtling backwards. For a millisecond, his entire body appears to freeze mid-air. His heels are above the canvas. His left arm is high, as if suspended in the very instant he had tried to fend off the blow. Nissen is on his feet. His left foot is firmly planted and his right leg bent at the knee, heel lifted, toes tensed, braced to propel himself back to the scot. It's poetic, almost. The, the poetry of boxing or pugilism... Well, look, you know, when it, uh, the first draft of this book was actually entirely written in the rhythms of a fight, which I think um, approximate the the rhythms of of the da- of dance, uh, you know, and and um, so I was determined to get these these boxing sequences right, and to get them right does involve rhythm and does involve movement. There is a poetry to boxing. And there is a vicious side and brutality to boxing, and I felt that I had to get both across. And and the way I, I recreate those those fights is that in those days boxing was an esteemed sport, and there were long reports of major fights. Well, that's the major fight uh, where where Henry won the Commonwealth title and was then offered a world title fight. And uh, and so I, I I read all of those reports. I mean Henry Nissen keeps every single report on his fights right down to the merest paragraph, and so that was all there. And 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 then recreated it from 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 all of that uh, information. But then it's it's the love of the craft. It's the love of the the art of writing that you, you, this is you you have to then transcend all of this and create the rhythm, and that's what mm. you work on. But also then there's that image, because that, that sort of fight, there's a photograph, and, and it's sort of that instant is captured. And it's almost like you've turned boxing um, into poetry there, that, that poetic image, and there's something transcendent, even in, well, my image of boxing um, is, you know, brutal and, and such like, um, but it's it's magic. It's like any passage of sport that sort of in a moment just transcends there's something glorious about it well look the greatest writer about boxing i think he generally uh, acknowledged his uh, liebling a chap called liebling he was writing in the 50s and 60s late 40s and he coined the phrase the sweet science which and 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 when he wrote about boxing um it was choreography, and it was not only the choreography of the fight itself. It was the choreography of the neighbourhood, you know, and and the people streaming to the stadium. And and he was riding in New York, and he was uh, he'd go to Harlem on the way to a Joe Lewis fight, and it was social history as well because uh, he saw the sort of people for whom boxing meant everything, because uh, many other things were denied them. And there is a certain parallel here with the, with the Nissans. They were impoverished, uh, they were uh, on the outside, and, and the book, of course, takes you to this extraordinary story of a mother who descends into madness and meant that they were institutionalised as kids because she couldn't look after them. So that's part of the, the, the story of, 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 of the boxing, in a way. It, it is, the, it is inextricably linked with what, what boxing mm. means for them, and it meant that they found their feet. See, this is the whole thing. They found their feet in the ring. They found their feet in getting up 
at 5am and going on 10 kilometre runs every single day of the year, they found the discipline and they found self-respect and they found two men, working class Aussie men, who said, okay, I'm not going to ask, we, we don't ask any questions, you're keen, you, you, you're willing to work hard, we're going to take you on. And it gave them the roots. But here, getting back to this notion of the influence of the author and the poetry, etc., <laughs> and the rhythm that you talk about, which makes then boxing an extended metaphor that goes all the way through this book. Henry does a lot of social outreach work and he meets up with um, R. He's just put in as R. And listen to the way this encounter plays out. R is waiting. He is tall and lanky with a dark complexion. He wears tight-fitted black jeans, a khaki army jacket and a pair of black runners. His face is all but concealed by the brim of a baseball cap tilted over his forehead at a sharp angle. How long have you been back in town, says Henry. Four or five months, R answers. He shifts nervously from foot to foot, rocking left to right, right to left. His eyes are pinned and glazed over. He towers above Henry and bends down over him. R needs to get R's need to get close is urgent. Now that Henry is here, he must seize his chance, take full advantage. He is governed by instinct, street logic. He has Henry cornered. Henry stands his ground. He has been in this situation many times. He, too, is governed by instinct. He knows the drill. He has decades of experience. I'm on methadone, says R. I'm in rehab, kicking the habit. Good on you, says Henry. Got a court case coming up. He pauses, moves his face closer. You've got to be there, Henry. You've got to be there. He speaks in a harsh whisper, conspiratorial. He is oblivious to the comings and goings around him, the constant movement. The doorbell rings incessantly. Residents hang around the foyer. They sit against the walls and linger in the corridors. They pace the worn carpets and stand on the lower parts of the stairway, elbows propped on the banisters. They hover outside the office, circling warmth, pursuing their craving for human contact and a need to assuage their restlessness, the infernal boredom. Now that R has got Henry's attention, he is not going to lose it. He will not let go until he is certain Henry will help him. You've got to be there, he says. There is an edge of rage in his voice, desperation. Henry remains steady. He takes out his pocket diary and the stub of a pencil. He enters detail, the magistrate's court, familiar territory. It's in the book, he says. Don't worry. R stays in close, menacing. He views the world with suspicion, either threaten or be threatened. He is tightly wound. He can go off at any second. He is oblivious to the world around him. He sways on his feet, contemplating his options. He thinks for a while and moves further forward. Henry arches his back, but his feet remain planted. R puts a hand to his chin, grits his teeth, calculates. Then abruptly he backs off. Henry straightens up, released from the tension. I've got the willpower, R says. He is lighter, calmer now that the business is concluded. He too is released from the tension. It's a boxing match. Look, I, I, it's extraordinary that you've marked out that passage, which I actually read last night at one event I did, and um, and, and thank you for reading it so beautifully um, and, and, and really, really immersing yourself in it. Um, look, you're right. Uh, you know, when it comes to... Uh, it was extraordinary to observe. Now, this scene, I, I say it takes place in the rooming house. It's actually the Gatwick, the infamous Gatwick, which I found a very moving place. And it's a place where a lot of rage is being expressed and 
all kinds of uh, misfits and eccentrics hang out there. But it's also a community, and there's a lot of a kind, there's a kind of intimacy and even a kind of edge of love there. Um, and and that scene, you know, is actually a scene that belongs to a novel, and yet what it what it comes from is intense observation. I was actually sit, sitting. <laughs> I'm the invisible presence. I'm sitting about two metres away watching this. I was very close up. And what I saw was choreography again. Mm. Very few words were being spoken, but it was so tense. And they were in the eye of a storm. There's a storm raging around them of all these other energies that keep on coming in and out of the Gatwick off Fitzroy Street. Um, But you're right. And, And the other way in which I guess the the uh, metaphor of the fighter and the fight is there is is with Henry's mother. I mean, Henry's mother, you know, and and, we, and I think it's important to to tell the potential reader that this book takes a an arc, a narrative arc away from boxing and becomes about something else. Uh, and 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 the mother too was a fighter, and we mm. can I guess enter into that. Now. Well, I, I think that's where the boxing is universal, that extended metaphor that I was talking about. Because here, we're not actually in a boxing arena, we're in real life. Henry, after uh, the the boxing and, and his career uh, in the ring, is now doing more outreach work, working with people. But this encounter is a fight, as if this is life, that you have to struggle, you have to fight, you have to stay the course toe the line, all of those sorts of things. So you've got that in the immediate world of what's going on in Melbourne today. But then, as you say, you've then um, arced out into the other influences and forces on Henry's life, which gets us to Henry's mother and father, for that matter, and what they had to go through, the fight and the battle there. And it's a battle that um, she didn't necessarily win. Well, I think there are moments of grace. And this is very important to say, look, I had to enter into her world fully. I had to uh, see the world at certain times from her point of view. And it was harrowing. And, um, it, and, and all the scenes, which are novelistically written, from her point of view, all those things are based on countless conversations with the, the four uh, Nissan siblings that are still alive. One died, the oldest son died a few years ago of cancer. And, um, uh, and so uh, I, was rely- I, was, I, was, I was getting as much detail as possible to enable me to recreate those harrowing scenes. But however, there are moments of, of grace and there are moments, other moments... Um, and it was Sandra. If there's a twist in this book, from and 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 a twist happened in pursuing the story, and that is that the youngest there were four boys, and then this gift of a, a girl Good child, same, Alexandra, yeah. comes along, and it enables a mother daughter relationship to develop. And Sandra was the one that gave me the most uh, beautiful insights into the other Sonia. The fact that she made sponge cake and. Borscht, and it was it was glorious to recreate almost the hallucinatory quality of of those scenes. Her, her making borscht and the colours that were on the table, mm. and it goes from sepia and black and white 
to full-on colour. Mm. And also she, there were little hints, like she liked Crystal. Oh, she loved Crystal, so it leads to a whole riff mm. on Crystal. Oh, she, she, she loved winter coats. She, mm. was, she was once a tailor. Um, oh, and there's a whole riff that comes out of that. And that's very important. You know, Primo Levi called this the eloquent episode. Virginia Woolf calls it moments of being. There are moments of being. There's a passage there about Sonia and her, a grandchild, mm. a little infant, uh, and, and the connection it comes from a photo. And that is a pure moment of being. That is a pure connection between a grandmother and her uh, grand, grandchild. So, yeah. But it, in many ways, it, it helps add to Henry's narrative as well because all the way through the book, you've got this echo, poor girl. Poor girl, and it's a mantra Henry has uh, virtually throughout his life. So he's yeah, it's up, mum, poor girl, mum, poor, poor girl. girl. That's right. Um, that it has influenced um, his own psychology, his own attitude to life as well. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it. And Henry will say, you know, Henry will say if you apparently at the launch. We, we had a launch last week at the Trades Hall, which was fitting for a guy who now works on the docks mm. um, and uh, is a member of the MUA. But, um, uh, you know, he, people were coming up to Henry and they've told me this since then. Um, that and, they, and he'd say to them, oh, you see, now you can understand uh, what made me. You know, now you can understand uh, why I became what I became. Mm. And his parents basically came out after World War Two, as you say, marginalised. They were eking out a living. Um, you know, Simke was um, a, a tailor and such like. They're carrying that weight of what they'd been through uh, in the Holocaust and all of these sorts of things. That the torment after World War Two, um, which can't but help influence the lives of any offspring as they go through. But there's another thread I want to pick up on uh, as well, and that's Henry's motivation. He seems to be a selfless character. Now, there's a hint that I get in the book with the Dark Destroyer. Um, Basically, there has been a death in the ring. There's a boxer called the Dark Destroyer, um, and he... well. Somebody dies, his opponent dies, um, and this affects the Dark Destroyer, he's never named, um, which uh, torments him, tortures him in many ways. Um, He slid into addiction and self-loathing. He tried to kill himself, but he dragged himself back. He became a closer friend of the man he crippled. He hosted benefit dinners and raised money for medical bills. Oh, he didn't kill him. Sorry, that's what he did. He almost did. He almost did. He He wheeled him about. He helped his family. He offered him respect. And he received his forgiveness. He had done the right thing. Now, that sort of led me to wonder, because that occurs fairly early in the book, mm. what Henry's motivation is. Well, look, it, it's, it's very interesting. That was a very moving moment which occurred at the casino on a, at a Boxing Hall of Fame night. Uh, and I attended several of these nights. They're held once a year. And... Um, at that moment, you felt because the fraternity there is there to celebrate the sport, and they're very—I don't know if defensive is the word—but they know they know that people look down on this sport this nowadays, and uh, and and you'll hear this term all the time. We fought to put food on the table. We fought for self-respect. This is our credo. 
this is our way. But you know, it comes in these moments. And he was the guest speaker. He's actually a, a Jamaican, I think from Jamaican origin by way of London, became world champion three or four times and um, and he was uh, now lives in Sydney. And he's a born-again Christian and he works with kids. And this is the rede- this is where the redemption comes in, the way they use boxing to help others. It's a very, very deeply held um, uh, conviction that you then have to go out there and help lift others out of, out of their impoverishment or out of their rage and their anger, discipline them, get them off the streets. And that's the way the fraternity sees themselves. And this is what Henry is doing and has spent now the majority of his life uh, helping those on the streets, uh, speaking on their behalf in court and all sorts of things. And so towards the end, uh, you get this sort of motivation uh, sort of encapsulated. It's a trait that extends beyond his homilies about life and love and caring and beyond Henry's craving to be known and to be praised and fated, beyond his love of the limelight and the simple storyline by which he defines himself. The script he repeats again and again with the barest prompting of the child who fought his way up overcame the odds and triumphed. And there is something deeper than his good cheer, the steel at the core, the unbroken spirit, the pugnacious wisdom of the stayer, the long-distance athlete, the creed of the fighter. So this is his motivation, that sort of creed to help others. Yeah, it is. And it's so ingrained in him that now at the age of 68, every spare moment, because he works on the docks whenever they call him as a labourer, Every spare moment he's out there again with uh, Father Bob's mob helping people on the streets. And if you spend, and this comes through, if you spend an hour with Henry, there will always be at least one call from someone in distress. And at that moment, his attention goes to that person. Could be someone interstate saying, I, I want to get back to Melbourne. Can you, you know, can you help me? I'm freaking out. Even people contemplating suicide and he's, he's off and running. But I have to say this. There is another thread, right? Uh, At the end, when I sat down to dedicate the book, I ended up dedicating it to the mothers of the neighbourhood. And so there is something else. There was something else that saved the Nissan twins, and that was the fact that in Carlton, in Amos Street, there were these wonderful working-class Aussie mums who had an open door, saw the kids were hurting and invited them in, the wonderful Bloss MacDonald, who now lives in Seaford in her 90s. And and I think that's a very important part of that redemption, uh, That the, uh, the uh, a very, very important part of the Nissan story. Yeah, that, well, that outreach that of the mothers in many ways, that but also that community spirit where they were helping each other. Is it a community we have lost, do you think? I think to some extent we have, and I think that... Um, yeah, it's everything has got two sides. Everything there, there is paradox in everything, and uh, and the paradox here is that uh, you know whilst we've become gentrified and in and in, in, in uh, more middle class to a certain de- degree, we've also developed a kind of fear of allowing our kids out into the streets. Uh, I mean, we ran free as kids because our parents were so busy making a new life in a new world. We had a lot of freedom, yeah. um, and and they had to trust us out there and we were toughened up uh, and now uh, I think a lot of that's gone however there are pockets and if you go out to other parts of Melbourne now um, you can see some of that happening but yeah I think and, and, and there's, a, there's something else that should be said here there is a distinction made by sociologists 
between the Gemeinschaft and the Gesellschaft. Now, Gesellschaft is more like a society. It's got its rules. It's a colder term. But Gemeinschaft uh, means intimate community, the intimate neighbourhood. Now, I didn't want to idealise it. You know, Bloss talks about the domestic violence that took place um, and, there were, and, there were, and then the drunkenness that used to occur including her father, would, was, uh, would, would become uh, um, inebriated and, and, and violent. But on the other hand, there was a certain kind of intimacy which I think had its, had its beauty and its, and its redeeming features. And you can read about it, the listener can read about it, in The Fighter, A True Story by Arnold Zabel, and it's a text publication. 